Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, dear listeners. <laughs> Welcome back to God's Planning. My name is Father Patrick Briscoe, and I'm joined here today by Father Gregory Pine. Hello, Father Gregory. Hello, Father Patrick. How are things? Well, here we are. <laughs> it's Lent. It's Lent. Everything is terrible. Well, in a manner of speaking, except for the things that aren't terrible. The but... marks of our holy fastings of Ash Wednesday, the ashes have been washed from our foreheads, <laughs> the somber, dreary tone of the season has wow. taken our hearts by storm. You're just waxing especially poetical right now, so... Here we are. Kudos to you for the interiorization of the Lenten spirit. There's nothing that makes an Irishman happier than suffering, mm. and I think that's why we Catholics do so well during Lent. Because <laughs> we're Irishmen? Well, I mean, just... <laughs> yeah, that was a good transition, right? Uh, that's why my soul does so well during Lent. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than a good, a good, a good penitential season. To except a funeral. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as John Mulaney once said, "I'm Irish, so I keep all of my emotions right here, and then I die." <laughs> Bury the boy. Bury, Bury the, the boy. boy. <laughs> uh, so if you if you are kind of dragging, if your Lent isn't off to the start that it was, if you are excited about the prospect of holy fasting you know we are we are here for you mm. so that's the topic of our episode today we want to consider um, fasting from the tradition of the church we want to talk about our own experience of fasting um, at great length um, father gregory is especially skinny and i'm not so there's <laughs> there are two perspectives on fasting right there exactly <laughs> the title of this episode will be <laughs> Fasting and its failures. <laughs> a line in a circle. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm here to give advice about how to look tall, hungry, and gaunt. And Father Patrick is here by way of encouragement. <laughs> for those of you who don't, I have options for you. <laughs> well, as concerns fasting, maybe a good place to start is where the Lord starts with fasting. And I think that, uh, one... We want to place fasting within a proper context. So I don't think that many of us are tempted to make uh, all of Christian life into an extended fast. But, um, you know, some of us are more inclined to rigor and vigor, and some of us less so. And so if you are on one side of the spectrum or on the other, we're, we're going to try to tend towards um, a healthy appreciation of its yeah place within the Christian tradition. So let's start with Scripture first. Uh, the Lord makes mention of fasting in a variety of contexts. And I, th I suppose the ones that occur most readily to us from the outset are um, the fasting practices of the Lord himself and of his disciples. Right. Right. For so, which like, he was challenged. For which he was indeed challenged. Um, it's interesting that St. Thomas actually asked the question, why, why did Christ come and live in the way that he did? Because he could have been more exemplary in certain things you know certainly he was you know he was celibate so when we think about poverty chastity and obedience as extreme things to do he's very he's very much celibate he's also very much obedient to the father you hear that come out in the garden of gethsemane mm -hmm. um, but he's also poor but not as poor as you might expect you know like not as poor as a saint francis i mean the one apostle carried a money purse for the group and right. it seems that jesus ate a good amount of food because the question that's posed to him is the disciples of john came to him and said why do we and the pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast. Right. I think we have this, we have this general impression, I think that's true, of John the Baptist being somewhat, just being more ragged than Christ. Yeah. You know, um, sort of wild looking and the way that he's clothed and how he eats eats bugs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love, I love, (laughs) iconography of John the Baptist often has him, like one, looking exceedingly tired, two, looking crazed, like his eyes are always just wild. And then he's got like sticks in his hair. (laughs) (laughs) Could you not have combed today? (laughs) Yeah, mm-hmm. not only was he a, a profound ascetic, but he was also uh, unkempt. Yeah, and but that unwashed. impression, but that impression. I mean, it's important that that impression comes to us, you know, right, right here from the scriptures. So there's a certain way in which um, John and his disciples appear appeared to have a more ri- rigorous asceticism than Christ. So I think when we when we read this passage, on the one hand, we're we're noting the fact that Christ and his disciples did not fast, or at least keep the. Uh, very intense fasts of John and his disciples or of the Pharisees who observed a fasting that went beyond the law, right? So they had their own kind of law, the halakha, which was a elaboration of the Torah that, that placed stricter demands upon them than right. it did upon the regular practice of Judaism. Um, so, so Jesus isn't fasting, but when he talks about fasting, he admits of it as a possibility for Christians in the future, but he does so um, relative to his person. So Christ mm-hmm. identifies himself as a bridegroom, and there's a time during which the bridegroom is present, and then there's a time that the bridegroom is taken away from us, and that fasting is somehow associated with the bridegroom being taken away. So what is it then like? What is it about expectation, or what is it about anticipation that's characteristic of our Christian lives that mm-hmm. we want to reassert or want to reclaim? I think here um, it's interesting to, to understand how Christ is a bridegroom, right? So there are a lot of places where this kind of description is mentioned. Certainly, John John the Baptist refers to him as such, right? The, that he identifies as the friend of the bridegroom, right? And he points awesomely and adamantly towards the bridegroom himself. But Christ is speaking of a coming marriage, and the marriage is of him and of his church. And the place where that marriage is affected is on the cross, right? So the Lord weds himself to humanity in his flesh, but he also affects the reconciliation of God and man through all of the deeds of his life, right? But especially in the Paschal mystery. And so what remains for us now who live after the Paschal Mystery is to fill up what is lacking in our own members. So it's not that there's something actually lacking to the to the passion itself, right? Christ shed every drop of his blood for love of us, and in fact one drop of his blood would have been sufficient. But that needs to be applied in our lives. The merits of that passion need to take root in each individual Christian heart, and fasting is part of how that happens. So, yeah, your thoughts. The cycle of the liturgy, I think, invites us into this, right? Each year we experience um, the kind of the, the dramatic presence of the bridegroom, um, you know, when, 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 the marriage, when the marriage is brought totally to fruition, right? We experience this in, in such a powerful way during Holy Week. Mm-hmm. Um, then, there, there are the, then there's the more normative, um, more normative season of ordinary time, um, which, is, which is just absent, in which the kind of triumphal celebration of, of the cross and its victory is absent, right? It's completely different from the Easter season. Um, and then we have these seasons of, of marked preparation of Advent, um, when Christ first come into the world, and of our present Lenten season, um, which call for the kind of preparation um, that a wedding feast demands. We have to be readied in order to appropriate the graces of it, right? And so, um, so I think that within the liturgical cycle, within um, the movements of spiritual life in the church every year, there are these 
times of more dramatic presence, right, of, of the bridegroom in times, um, in times of absence or preparation. Um, and we can, we could think of it in a kind of an analogous way there. Yeah. So like, I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's multiple significances of fasting. I think about this too, when, when people are like, oh, you were a, you were a religious habit. That's, that must be awesome. You get to witness so much, you know, in public context. And that's true. But I think a lot of religious would tell you that their wearing of the habit isn't principally or, or primarily evangelical. It's a matter of identity, right. right? So it's a matter of you know who you are. Not that you'd forget when you don't wear your habit, but that you have a better appreciation for it because you're literally clothed in your vocation. And some people, you know, make a lot of the fact that, you know, women are religious. They wear their wedding dress every day. But it's a sense of your consecration is your very your very clothing is connoted in your consecration. And so the evangelical dimension is great. Like whenever I go to an airport, I always pray that I have good conversations with people. Oftentimes good conversations are ones that other people initiate because I'm like, hey, I want to talk to you. They're like, you are scary looking. <laughs> Get away from me. Um, so I, I hope for that evangelical dimension, but it's I think it's something that issues from the identity. So too with fasting, right? With fasting, part of it is the acknowledgement of our sins. I think of one of my favorite Lenten hymns is Ah Holy Jesus. And it, there's the one line, who is the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. Mm. I crucified thee. Mm. So here we live in the time after the coming and the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge our part in that. Right. You know, that my sins, my sins have condemned him, that my sins have killed him. Um, and we don't do that so as to uh, wallow in you know, like a kind of spirit of self-condemnation, but rather to take an active role or take a contemplative role in, um, in atoning for that, right? And acknowledging that our sins have done this and that we have yet to satisfy for them. And fasting is part of that, right? right? But also that it's done by way of anticipation. We get this a lot in the Advent season, that we live between the two comings of Christ, his first coming and his final coming. And our fasting is a way to get hungry for the final coming, <laughs> right? Because at the end of the day, material things are delicious and good and tasty. And I love chocolate chip cookies. And I love Chick-fil-A spicy chicken deluxe sandwiches. Mm. And I love Philadelphia 76ers for basketball. Mm. And I love spending time with my family. I love all these things, you know, that we experience uh, in the midst of the world. But they should satisfy us, but with an eye towards a further and yet more perfect satisfaction. And fasting is part of the way in which we discipline our desires so as to keep them fixed on what is ultimate. Mm. Christ allows us to share in that, right? Um, any merits that are brought to us by this action are ultimately uh, are ultimately foreordained and empowered by by His sacrifice. Um, so, insofar as insofar as we undertake fasting, it's always as our as our share, right? Um, in not just in the not just in the guilt, um, but but Christ is allowing us to share in the work of in, in the work of reparation um, for that for that sin. So, I, so I think there's a beautiful way in which you can experience. Um, dimensions of what Christ has done by entering seriously into a little bit of fasting, right? Because um, uh, because we get to we get to experience and to take seriously the physical realities of the passion, the physical effects of sin, and then um, the great graces that Jesus offers to un- to undo those things. Yeah, no, it's just um, it's wild that the Lord Jesus Christ gives His grace in such bewilderingly incarnate ways. Mm. Um, so he could zap us in the sense that like we could be toddling along down Eaton Avenue on our way to whatever, eat at some place on Douglas. Or, um, or well, I mean, like in the course of that toddling along, we could be like, whoa, 
I just feel like I just I just got grace zapped, you know. But there'd be no inherent connection between the fact of our toddling along and the fact of our receiving grace. It's not like the Lord gave some evangelical law. It's like when you walk down Eaton Street, if you do so straight, then you will get grace. You know, it's just like no, it's weird. There's no connection. But when it concerns fasting, you see that there's a logic in the action. Right. That like here you're denying yourself because you're looking at material goods and saying you're good, right? But you're not ultimately satisfying, and you are so, you know, delicious and lovely that if I were to look for you or look to you for ultimate satisfaction, I may get lost, I may get tangled, I may get otherwise ensnared. And so I'm going to place a critical distance between you and me. Um, here I've just made these material goods a person. Sorry, I'm kind of personifying. But um, I'm going to place a, a critical distance between you and me so that I don't get lost in you, so that I can love you well and ordinately, but ultimately so that I can attain to those things that are higher. And in doing that, you get the things that are higher. Right. So when we make the space, Christ fills it. Right. Christ gives it. Now, mind you, you know you can do fasting in a way that's vainglorious. Or you can do fasting in a way that's prideful. We shouldn't be scandalized by that fact because we're fasting out of fallen uh, capacity or fallen powers of the soul, and we can't expect for them to tend directly to their goal. I mean, it's just you, you can't get too terribly hung up on it. I mean, it's something you discuss with a spiritual director or a confessor, and you say like, "Yeah, I'm a prideful booger," and he'll be like, "No kidding," and they'll be like, "Keep doing the thing," you know. Like, but but doesn't this make me more of a prideful booger? He's like, "Everything makes you more of a prideful booger." <laughs> so uh, just get over yourself. And God, then, the Father of mercy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's there's this real close connection in the incarnate order between denying ourselves bodily and attaining to um, a higher spiritual fulfillment or, or joy. Here, here. That's a good place to pause for a moment. Um, we're going to recollect ourselves and come back um, with, with a little bit more um, fundamental theological ideas about fasting and then some uh, particular experiences thereof. <laughs> more hilarious stories await you, as always, on God's planning. We'll be, we'll be back in a flash. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. Having collected ourselves, welcome back <laughs> to God's Planning. Uh, I'm Father Patrick Briscoe, and joining me is Father Gregory Pine. We're here to talk to you about starving yourself and quick weight <laughs> loss. Um, if Weight Watchers haven't worked, hasn't worked for you, just stop eating completely. And, there it is. And that's the Christian life. No, we're actually talking about the, uh, the discipline of fasting. And um, I think that one one thing that we encounter when we think about when we think about the Christian theological um, grounds of fasting today is a is a radical need for asceticism. Mm-hmm. We need it. Our our American culture is filled with stuff, and um, what every every Christian realizes is that it's too easy. It's just so easy to become complacent, to be occupied with things that don't matter, and to become soft. And I think that when we start having conversations about real Christian asceticism, real Christian practices that challenge us, um, we quickly experience the kind of um, call to grandeur that Christ has in store for us in the Gospels. Um, Fasting opens up our soul and engages us um, to new heights of living. As the church, as a pilgrim people on this side of eternity, the image of being a traveler is so effective um, when we're connected to fasting because oftentimes when you're traveling, um, that could be just a simple opportunity to forego something. I am going to 
um, pass by that Chick-fil-A <laughs> and not indulge in a homespun milkshake. Um, mm. I'm, I'm going to take that opportunity. And I'm going to do it intentionally for Christ because he died for my sins. Um, there's something about being hungry and being on a trip, I think, that, um, that just connects so deeply with, um, with our state in this life. And when we travel, we, have the, we, we, we face that opportunity, right? You're sitting around at an airport. Um, you're driving down the interstate, and there's food available everywhere. And you can stop, and you just pound your face with um, whatever's available. And it costs almost nothing. It's just, it's just so easy to do. Um, but it lulls you into a state of complacency, right? That um, The food you've eaten, especially with some kind of greasy fast food, just like drops. And then you feel tired. And if you're always trying to satisfy those desires, that's what happens in Christian life. Um, you, you just become you just become um, wearied by it. Um, but fasting kind of wakes us up, and that kind of um, healthy deprivation of desire um, allows us to think more readily of higher things and to turn our focus more on Christ. Okay, so that's what we're experiencing in the Lenten season. Um, now, can you say a little bit for us, Father Gregory, about this difference um, that maybe a lot of people are unaware of um, or can't quite formulate, the difference between fasting and abstinence? Sure. So Lent is a time that, again, brings before our attention what's required of us by church law. So it's, uh, it's good to start with the basics. And um, so what we're responsible for are two days in, on which we fast and then a few more days on which we abstain. So abstinence, specifically as it's spoken of in church practice, concerns meat. So on, you know, the Ash Wednesday and on the Fridays in Lent and Good Friday, you would, you would abstain from meat on those days. But then in addition, on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday, you would also fast. Okay, so what does it mean in the church sense? Well, it means that you would have one meal, right? One one meal and then two small collations. And those collations are like just a little, you know, like a spot of food basically to quell your appetite. So the church here is proposing a model that's not based on a standard of bodily flourishing. Okay, so it's not saying like the point of Christian life is for you to have your dietetic needs met perfectly. Now, if you have like low blood sugar, if you have something like that, you got to tend to it, right? But the, the point on these days is to feel hungry, right? <laughs> yes, to I think, notice it. And, and I think a lot of times too, like um, it can creep in that, that one of the goals of our life is to never feel hungry. But in the Christian, mm-hmm. Christian tradition, it's always been the case that you should get up from the table not having been completely satisfied. Because if you do so, you lull yourself. You lull yourself into the sense, or you lull yourself. You'll, I can't say that word. Lull. Thank you. Yes. L U L L. That's lull. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Three L's in four letters. <laughs> That's like a Polish last name except with Z's. Um, just kidding. I'm all for that. Um, so uh, you can lull yourself into the false sense that we are to be satisfied here on earth. Um, I remember having come across an Onion article at one point where it's like <laughs> clock strikes 10:45 man goes for lunch and said, you know, fill in the appropriate swear word. Um, But like at a certain point each morning, we begin first Mm -hmm. thinking of lunch. And it's not that we begin thinking of lunch where we're like, okay, I feel a little bit hungry, but you know, in an hour and a half, I'll feel a little more hungry. And that'd be an appropriate time to eat given our societal understanding and my own dietetic needs. At like 1045, you begin thinking like, if I don't eat now, I am going to die. (laughs) And so, okay, so on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday, we're supposed to fast, but you're supposed to feel that feeling like, if I don't eat now, I'm going to die. Because what you learn in the course of the day is that that feeling is false. That that feeling uh, originates in our fallen nature, which wants to be coddled, 
which wants to be comfortable, which wants to have its every clamorous need attended to immediately and abundantly, and Mm. it will not cease until such time as it gets what it wants. But here's the thing. Mm. It will never have enough. (laughs) Okay? So that's the difference. Abstinence concerns meat. That's something that we do on Ash Wednesday, on all the Fridays of Lent, and on Good Friday. And then fasting means you have one meal, and then you're permitted to have two small collations, the, the sum total of which should be smaller than your meal. Right, so as our uh, novice master once disedifyingly said, that means you have one huge meal and two big meals. <laughs> Just kidding, we're not, we're not. Okay, yeah. Um, so that's like that's the basics. But I think too, fasting is something that grows out of our Lenten discipline, right. and it should characterize the entirety right. of a Christian life. So maybe you can talk a little bit about other ways in which immediately, fast. immediately, the temptation here is to descend into a kind of legalism. Right. Mm. Well, okay. So this this is where the spirit. Uh, the spirit of the law and the the actual um, the actual interpretation of the law have a greater have a greater invitation right they they're calling they're calling for something um, within us to be to be moved by the law and to be changed by it um, so for example uh, people often say you know well if I observe the Friday abstinence and have a lobster meal you know have I have I obeyed have I obeyed uh, Lenten abstinence. Well, yes, technically, um, but what of the spirit of it? You know, would you would you regularly go for a lobster meal on Friday? If you do, well, why would you? Why would you do? Why would you do such a thing? What does that say about your life and what, and what you're looking for and what your priorities are? Um, you know, there's a, there's a there's a there's a way in which there's an invitation there um, for 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 you to go beyond um, to go beyond a simple legalistic. Um, appropriation of the law and obedience to the law. We we have to obey the law. The law is important, um, but to to move into something deeper, right? To say, okay, I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold Lent and abstinence. I'm not going to cook an elaborate uh, an elaborate um, seafood meal. I'm going to go and I'm going to get that box of Gordon's fish sticks. Gordon's now a sponsor of God's name. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get that box of Gordon's fish sticks, and that's going to be that's going to be the way that I'm going to be more conformed to Christ. Um, because it's not really appetizing, and there's nothing grand about it, and uh, I'm going, I'm going to make that a sacrifice, right? So fasting has um, the fasting and abstinence laws of the church have in them um, this opportunity, this opportunity for greater conformity with Christ. Um, if we observe them, not just as mere technicalities, but also um, in the in the spirit of the Lenten season, right? So I think that's I think that's really important to have. Uh, behind our behind uh, our concept of fasting, I think another thing too that's a perennial feature of the Christian tradition <clears throat> is that you detach from things so that you can attach to things. Mm. So sin is not so much rooted out as it is crowded out, right? Right. So it's not that we're supposed to have our soul vacuumed and then left unoccupied so that seven demons can come in the wake of the one that's been exercised. But rather, we want our house to be lived in, right? To be lived in by the Lord. Mm. And so whenever we adopt these things, whether they concern food or drink or entertainment, you know, we're, we're detaching so as to attach. And I think that, um, like, what we're, what we're forging in our mind, I mean, in a material level is like neural pathways, but in a spiritual level is real intellectual associations between a deprivation and then an affirmation. So we're depriving ourselves of food or drink or entertainment or whatever uh, so that we can love the Lord yet more perfectly. 
So I think that like, okay, so we start with food in our general disposition, I mean, in our de- general description, because that's what the church recommends during the Lenten season. And you've already adopted your Lenten practices, those who are listening. So you're not going to, you wouldn't want to change them midstream because that would make you feel like a failure. Um, we don't want that. So how then can we help to deepen the practices as they are currently being espoused? And um, how can we make those associations or make those connections? Mm. I know that a lot of people are doing Exodus 90. And from what I understand, you, Father Patrick, are doing Exodus 90. What are the, uh, some of the things that are recommended by Exodus 90? What is Exodus 90? Exodus 90 is a men's um, spiritual program. It's a, a fantastic curriculum, but it's very demanding. And um, it, speaks to, it speaks to our desire um, for excellence, really. Um, and so among the disciplines of Exodus 90 are you know, limited, limited screen time, um, no snacking between meals, um, cold showers in the morning, um, and th- these these sort of fundamental ways of challenging some of the some of the comforts of modern life um, ha- have really worked, you know, personally to um, to to aid my own to aid my own spiritual life, and so so I really recommend them. Um, they the program of Exodus ninety um, what it helps us to do is of course to, to to tame our desires and to encourage virtues. So as Father Gregory was saying. Um, the, the decisions that we make in our lives build up build up neural pathways, right? We build up habits, and fasting is one of those ways where we where we can just challenge that, where we can become attentive to, um, where, where we can become attentive to um, more opportunities for loving the Lord. Um, cold showers, especially. I'm I'm being dead serious here. A truly excellent thing to do for Christ. Why? Because it's a it's a little thing that um, that we do every day that we take for granted. Um, that becomes that becomes a way to change um, that becomes a way to change a daily routine. That's what fasting does. Um, to change up our daily routine, to make space for Christ in our lives, um, to willingly forego comforts uh, of the here and now with a mind towards eternal things. That's the goal. Yeah, and that's and what Lent is about. I think too, with respect to cold showers, um, a lot of our a lot of our first thoughts upon waking are of comfort. So many people think of snoozing and staying in bed. They think about the Absolutely. warmth of their bed. They think about the coldness of the floor that awaits their unshod feet. And they th- they're they moving towards the shower so that way they can be swaddled in like a torrent of warm water. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and you know, like you might say a morning offering and consecrate the day to the Lord, and that's a good way to go about it. I think a lot of people's morning offering sounds a little bit like this, like, mm-hmm. Um, Sacred heart masses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, but to do a cold shower is a really radical step. You know, like Jose Maris Gravas speaks about the moment when your alarm goes off as the heroic moment. And so we don't want to appeal so much to like willpower in the direct sense because it's it's good to just be habituated to a practice that makes you think about the Lord rather than always having to conjure or muster the willpower, right? And, and you're just saying you're like, okay, I'm committed to a cold shower, right? So here we go. And the only reason that this makes sense at all is because Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, this is insane. This is backward. This is barbaric. This is sheer and a utter nonsense. of the human condition. So we want to like, the fasting that we try to bake into our day is to communicate the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's worth our whole heart's love. Um, and I think that like, you know, the reason that a lot of people are unwilling to, um, to undertake difficult practices or fasts is because they just don't think that such heights are attainable, right? Right. Yeah, there's a fear of there's a fear of imperfection, um, especially when you when you look at a program like Exodus ninety, which as I've recommended, I think is a great program. Um, one of the challenges can be um, to decide to not even embark on something like that because you say to yourself, "Well, I'm well, I'm going to fail." Of course, you're going to fail. 
You're a reprobate sinner. <laughs> and on, only the grace of Christ, only the grace of Christ will sustain you. Um, and the, so, the, so, but then you say, what's the point? You know, what, what's the difference between this and, and a kind of uh, absolute nihilism, right? Is that, is that knowing, knowing that undertaking these practices will, will allow you again to be more perfectly conformed to Christ. Uh, mm. that, um, that we don't undertake these things by ourselves as a kind of plan of personal perfection or personal growth, um, but that we undertake uh, the disciplines of Lent, any kind of aesthetic discipline, especially the discipline of fasting, that we, that we undertake in, in, order, in order to see Christ through it. Yeah. And I think my, I mean, my last thought as we kind of wind up is that it's possible, but it's possible to be holy. Mm-hmm. It is possible to be holy. Sometimes mm-hmm. we look at the example of the saints and we think, wow, look at um, St. Pio of Pietrocina or look at St. Francis of Assisi or look at St. Francis Xavier. Look at these men who endeavored very, very difficult fasts and bodily mortifications and attained to great heights of sanctity. Well, I can't possibly be called to such great heights of sanctity as a result of which their fasts lie entirely without the bounds of my competence. And mind you, you don't, you don't adopt very, very difficult um, bodily mortifications without counsel, you know, so this would be the type of thing that you talk to your spiritual director and confessor about. But I think that these things are possible, you know, and they're part of the story of how the Lord is sanctifying us, how the grace that he is giving us is made fruitful in our lives, how we can consent to it and cooperate, it, co- cooperate with it more earnestly, more eagerly. Um, and, and, and really to kind of heal us of that spirit of despair which says, I will never amount to anything. The Lord's given some five talents and some two talents and some one talent. And to me, he's given a sixteenth of a talent, you know. <laughs> so alas and alack, here's my life of just simpering mediocrity. Um, no, look, the Lord wants to do great things in you. And he can do great things in you. And fasting is part of the story as to how he is. So, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Continue your Lenten journey. Stay strong. Choose macaroni and cheese over lobster on Friday. <laughs> Pray for the graces of conversion. Um, if you like what you're hearing on God's planning, please share our episodes. We're grateful for that. Um, everything's done for the glory of Christ, um, that his name might be known and praised and loved now into ages. Mm-hmm. Amen. See you soon. Thanks for listening to God's planning, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.